Good morning. Everybody alive? If you're dead, raise a hand. We'll pray for you first off. I've said that a few times when people have actually raised their hands. Well, I want to, uh, we do have a, uh, a singular focus later on uh, that I'm going to speak about about uh, the miraculous and the role of the miraculous in the church. And uh, I'll just say that oftentimes uh, when we begin to delve deeper into the spiritual gifts like the gift of prophecy or healing miracles, we kind of make that an in-all and end-all, and that's a mistake. They're tools for the work of the ministry. The greatest gift is not the gifts, but the gift giver himself. But I want to... ramble a little bit, if that's okay, before we get going with that. Uh, today is 9-11. It's yeah, the uh, 20th anniversary of, obviously, what happened 20 years ago. And uh, as I think about this this morning, I was thinking about uh, some of the reaction all over the globe um, in the immediate aftermath of the first several months of 9-11. Uh, it's only been 20 years, but the world was a very different place at that time. And uh, there wasn't, didn't, doesn't seem like there was quite as much animosity, bitterness, divisiveness. But one of the uh, things I was thinking about this morning that um, really struck me when I first heard it, and this was maybe, I don't know, a couple of months after 9-11, that uh, many of you have heard of the Maasai people. They're a uh, tribe in uh, Kenya and, um, uh, pardon me? Tanzania. Tanzania, but what's the country's next Ethiopia. to? Pardon me? Ethiopia. Yeah, yeah, Uganda, and that, that part of the world. Let's just say East Africa. <laughs> we're, we're safe there. Somewhere it is written. Somewhere people live. But the Maasai people, they're a bit of a... Um, uh, herders, the uh, hunters, the Maasai warriors of all the many, 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 many different tribes in Africa, they were one of the most feared. Uh, their warriors just had, uh, were just incredible. But a small group of these Maasai people uh, in a remote part of, uh, I think it was Kenya, they heard about what had happened in 9-11 in New York City. And they contacted, and there were Bush people, no telephones, especially at that point, no modern communication, but they sent a messenger to the, the capital of uh, the country, and they said, we've got a dozen cows we want to give to the United States to help support them. And, you know, obviously the need of the moment was not more steak, although I'll always take a good steak, <laughs> wasn't more hamburgers, but what their heart, because that to them was a huge sacrifice to give away a dozen cattle. And last night I spoke, uh, at the beginning of the meeting, I spoke about three different levels of faith. We can have Lamb of God faith, which is our initial salvation revelation of Jesus. And then we can go beyond that Jehovah Jireh faith. We understand that God wants to be involved in every aspect of our life. He's the Lord God who provides. But there's a third level of faith I spoke of, which is the line of the tribe of Judah faith, that Jesus is the champion of the nations. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. But part of that line of the tribe of Judah faith, I believe, is not just having an initial level of faith where we're believing God wants to bless us and our family and maybe a few people, and not even beyond that, realizing God wants to bless the whole church and we get involved sacrificially in living and giving. 
kingdom livings in the giving. I was thinking there might be an amen on that, but we'll keep going. But the third level of faith, I believe, calls for a global perspective. That when we take to heart that prophetically in Psalm 2, the psalmist said uh, uh, to the father saying to the son, ask of me and I will give the nations to you as inheritance. Realizing that, especially in this day and age, we're part of something on an ever-increasing acceleration right now. And I'm not getting into eschatology, you know, I'm not going to say when the Lord's returning, but things are spiraling both good and bad. Evil is becoming more blatantly open and evil, but also the kingdom of God is increasing like never before. A, a prophecy, uh, Isaiah is my favorite prophet of the Old Testament. He was more quoted by Jesus than any of the other prophets. He had more messianic revelation than any of the other Old Testament prophets. But a, a prof, prophetic promise that God gave through Isaiah in chapter 9 I hang on to and I preach on it all the time and I, I pray out of encouragement of it. It's when Isaiah uh, said the government will rest upon the shoulders and he's prophesying about Jesus over 700 years before he was born. And he said this, of the increase of his government, and we could substitute the word kingdom, but of the increase of his government, there will be no end. So I'd like you to think about that. Not just no end to his kingdom, but no end to the increase. So approximately 2,000 years ago, on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit of God was poured out, the kingdom of God began a real acceleration. And we know on that day of Pentecost, the 120 disciples were filled with the Spirit. They preached the gospel that day. They went from fearful, fearful of persecution, to fearless and bold, and thousands were saved that day. And then starting Jerusalem, they estimate that over a number of years, possibly one-third of all Jerusalem that may have had a population of 60,000, one-third of the whole city most likely got saved. But through Paul, Barnabas, Peter, and others, the gospel spread all over the known world at that time. And we look back at that period of time, over two generations, what happened in the early days church, as we know it is recorded, it was just a prolific time. In fact, Paul was accused of the man who shook the world, you know. But we think about that rapid increase of the gospel in the known world at that time, but the prophetic word of Isaiah was there'll be no end of the increase. And in point of fact, and this is, you can readily access this if you Google it, uh, the rate of increase of the gospel is in over the last 20 to 25 years, more people have come to Christ than the previous 2,000 years. Now, we say that and we say, can it really be? Because we almost see negative church growth in United States, Europe, Britain, etc. But yet, if we just look at India, we look at China, we look at Africa, we look at South America, the rate at which people are amikonu Christ, it is unparalleled in the history of the world. And it's only a matter of time before those seasons begin to hit Western Europe and the United States and Canada and England. You know, it's commonly said that we live in a post-Judaic Christian world. 
I don't believe that. I believe we live in a pre-revival <laughs> culture right now. And so we're part of something in these days, uh, as we see negative news increasing, we need to see beyond that and think globally as Christians and realize there's this sudden acceleration of the gospel. And I mention that because it, it starts right where we're at. You know, I, I love, you know, I, I mentioned this last night, that's why I talked about the history of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Toronto, that, you know, when the Lord gave me that prophetic word in May of 1992, that God is going to pour out his spirit on our church, he's going to do the nations. Well, you know, I've been with John Arnott, the former senior pastor there all over the globe, and, you know, in Toronto many times when he refers to that word, and John Arnott calls it an over-the-moon word, you know, like, you're going to jump over the moon, come on, you know. And, uh, but John Arnott, as much as he thought, oh, come on, you know, can this really happen? He took hold of it, and he had that prophetic word transcribed. It turned out to be four pages. And he sent the transcription, that prophecy. He, our church was only about 120 at the time, but he had a mailing list of close to 2,000 Christians in Toronto. He sent the transcription out to everybody, and he got people praying about it. And then two, a year and a half later, it broke out. And as I said, we had between four and five million people from all over the globe uh, walk through the doors of our church. And one of the most encouraging thing was it was not the manifestations in of themselves, but what God was doing with people, what that released. For example, many of you have heard of Iris Ministries, Heidi and Roland Baker, that's just had an enormous impact in the southern part of East Africa. Heidi and Roland, when they first came to Toronto, I think in November, October of 94, they were burnt out. They were just tired missionaries, but basically they spent five days on the floor under the power of the Holy Spirit, and I'm not saying you should just die for the floor, though it's a good place to be sometimes. Uh, God gives grace to the humble. But they went back to Mozambique, and that's when things began to break open. I remember I was with them way back, I think in 1997 or 98, um, and uh, we were doing this bush conference way up in the middle of nowhere, and there were a group of their native pastors, and these were the guys who were really uh, ra literally raising the dead. And there was a pastor, he and his, his I can't remember his wife's name, but his name was Don Wickey. And uh, Heidi and Roland introduced me to him. They were there for the conference and said, yeah, they, they've raised several people from the dead. And I said, really? I said, how many have you raised from the dead? And he's, um, you know, the, the people in that part of the world, you know, they, 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 they approach the things of God with a boldness, but also with a fearful reverence. And they kind of looked down, very humble. And Don Ricky said, well, I've raised uh, two people from the dead, but my wife has raised four people from the dead, you know. And uh, they had led a number of remote Muslim villages to the Lord. And I said, well, how do you do that? And I said, well, we go there and we preach the gospel. And we said, bring your sickest person here. And we pray for him. And, you know, and so this prolific acceleration. But I'm telling you all this not just, just to recite history, but, again, our church was only 120 people, you know, like the historians said, a small church at the end of the runway in Toronto. So we don't despise the day of small beginnings. And as I've been uh, praying about this time, uh, this opportunity to be with you all here, uh, I first began to, well, this has been arranged for several months, but about a month ago I began to pray. 
And uh, I saw a picture, and as I was praying a couple of days ago, I saw the same picture, a, a vision from the Lord. I saw a lighthouse uh, here uh, in Myrtle Beach. But the funny thing is, as I saw this lighthouse, the light was not shining out to sea. That's what lighthouses do, to warn ships about rocky or shallow area to avoid that and lead them into safe harbor. But I saw the light going inland. And I felt like the Lord said this about this lighthouse that he wants to establish in Myrtle Beach. It's going to be comprised of the church of the city, not just a single congregation or fellowship, but the church of the city. And there's going to be an authority, a governing authority to impact all of life. So I researched lighthouses in Myrtle Beach, and there's one lighthouse, gets what it's called the governor's lighthouse. It was built, I think if I remember correctly, in 1992 to commemorate the governors of South Carolina. And something interesting that's kind of weird, it's called, it's officially called a faux lighthouse, like not a real lighthouse. It actually works, it puts light out there, but it was built by private people. And so it's not a government, a state, or an actual city, or a federal lighthouse. It's privately owned. And I think that speaks of the fact that so many people are looking to the government. I think it was Tozer who said, the further people will get away from the knowledge of God, the more they're going to make government their God. And we're really seeing that this day and age. That's a can of worms, isn't it? Anyway, so we'll keep moving. But... I, felt, I wanted to encourage you all that I felt like the Lord said he's going to do something fresh and there's going to be this beacon, this light, a lighthouse, giving people clarity and warning, but also light in the darkness and there's going to be authority upon it. Now, indulge me for just five minutes. Let's talk about authority. You know, we think about authority and releasing miracles and prophecy, things like that, but the, as the government rests upon the shoulders of Jesus, as the church is in alignment with what the Spirit of God is saying, there's also an authority. Now, my home church in San Diego, uh, my wife and I helped start that church, uh, started it in 1988, and then 92, we moved to Toronto, but I would go back every year, sometimes twice a year, do meetings and conferences with them, and six years ago, we moved back to be based there full-time with the church when I'm not traveling. But uh, we were, um, we were uh, El Cajon, where our church is actually at, in the very east part of San Diego. <clears throat> San Diego has some very glamorous, high-end, very expensive, very ritzy, very exclusive communities. There's like Coronado Island, there's Rancho Santa Fe, there's La Jolla. And I'm not kidding, a, a shack, a veritable shack in La Jolla starts at a million dollars, you know. So the average, the average one of us, you know, we, we have to get permission to even drive through the neighborhood. <laughs> anyway, uh, there's incredible areas, beaches, community of San Diego. El Cajon, where our church is at, is not that. We're the part of San Diego that if a marriage falls apart and a woman without a job ends up with three kids and no income, she'll end up in El Cajon. There's a lot of gang violence. There's at one time uh, when we started the church, El Cajon was called the crystal meth capital of the United States because more crystal meth was manufactured and shipped out than any other place in the United States. A lot of broken families, a lot of drug addiction, a lot of alcohol addiction and all of that. 
But we started the church in one community over, a little bit nicer neighborhood, and we, uh, we were meeting like a YMCA building, and after about four years, we outgrew that. And the only place we could really afford to get if we were going to get our own building was El Cajon. And we, uh, this Christian guy that owned this large, uh, you know, kind of commercial area, this large warehouse-type building, said, yeah, I'll sell this to you real cheap. But the city of El Cajon had not allowed, they had actually uh, laws against churches uh, almost starting up. They had not allowed a new church building literally in 35 years. The, the church, the city council of five people and the mayor, they were really anti-church in their views. And so it, it, would, it was cost us every penny we had to move into this building, but um, the big problem was, would we be able to get a zoning variation from the city? Not likely. We hired a Christian lawyer to represent us to go before the city council, and we spent months in our, as a church praying about this, and finally, the city council meeting where they were going to vote upon this, we told all of our people in our church, please don't go to the city council meeting. Let's meet somewhere. We'll all be in prayer, but we don't want to be there with signs, you know, protesting and all this sort of thing. Uh, but we had a, a couple of our leaders there and uh, together with our, our lawyer representing us. And that lawyer, he canvassed the five city council members like an hour before they met to bring it up again to encourage them to think about it. And of the five of them, one said, I'll vote favorably, three said no, and one said, I don't think I'm going to vote for you. Looked pretty sketchy. Yeah. So when they actually took the vote, whether it gives the zoning variation, four out of the five voted yes. And my friends who were there said it was the most bizarre thing because when four out of the five, you know, they all press their butt. You don't know who's voting what. You know, it's at their desk up high there. Uh, you know, and, but the green light show overhead, it was the strangest thing because all the city council members began to look around, well, who voted for this? And <laughs> our, lawyer, our lawyer talked with... Um, uh, some of the city council members afterwards said, well, I thought you were going to vote no. And they said, you know, right, we're about to press the button. I just felt this overwhelming yeah. urge. Yeah. I, I had to vote yes. So we moved in, and that was in January of 92. My wife and I moved to uh, Toronto in May of 92. But around about February or March, we're having a leaders meeting. And um, elders, whatever you want to call it, there was about five of us at that point. And uh, of the two brothers I'd started the church with, Mark and Dave Hoffman, they're still the senior pastors here today. We're in a season of transition over a five-year period, handing the church over to a, a younger guy to be senior leader. But... Uh, we're having our elders meeting, and Mark Hoffman says, well, I've got something I want to bring up, and I don't know how everybody's going to feel about this, but uh, I feel very strong the Lord has spoken this to me. And as a point of reference, he talked about the fact that uh, he and his brother, myself as well, and the other two guys, we had all either gotten saved in the Jesus movement or deeply impacted by it. And in the Jesus movement, particularly in Southern California, over a period from about uh, 65, 66 to about 74, 
literally hundreds of thousands of people, primarily between 15 and 30, got saved. A lot of them coming out of the drug culture, out of just alternate lifestyles, all of that. But by 1992, we had seen a real hardening come to the culture, an increased hardening come to the culture of Southern California. Whereas 15 years before, people that were maybe 28 or so uh, were very open talking about God. There'd come an increase of sin, searing of conscience, hardening of the heart. And uh, Mark had been praying, Mark Hoffman, and he felt the Lord say to him, if you're really going to touch the generations, you've got to go after the kids who are now between 10 and 16 years old because they're the ones who are the most open. So we are in El Cajon, and El Cajon, as I said, a lot of broken families, a lot of alcohol addiction, drug addiction, the whole thing, a lot of gangs. And so there were lots of kids between 10 and 12 years, or 10 and 16, what you'd call latchkey kids, come home from school. Nobody's home, and you know, even the parents are home, and, you know, not really being parents a lot of times. And they were vulnerable to two things, getting sucked into drugs and being sucked into gangs. And Mark said, I feel like God has spoken to me. We have to target as a church and go after this generation El Cajon, but we're not going to be able to get him to come to church. And he said, I feel like God has given me a plan that as a church, we're to rent a little storefront location, we're to train some people in our church, volunteers, in relational evangelism. We need to fill that place with like foosball um, uh, tables, ping pong tables, uh, pool, you know, all that, you know, video games, you know. And we're to give these latchkey kids a safe place to hang out. And realizing that a lot of these kids do not really have a father or mother that can really talk about issues because so many of them coming from drugged out families, we, want to, we need to train our workers so they can befriend them so when the kids trust them, they'll open up and we'll start a discipleship program. It's, it was very involved more than that, but we didn't have the money for it to rent that storefront property, but we felt God speak to us, said, do it. So we got together the money and we, uh, we ran the first place, we trained a group of volunteers, filled it with all this stuff and opened it up. That was the first of today, we have seven locations like that, off-campus location San Diego. And I, I'm not exaggerating when I say that over the last 20 years, we have seen between eight and 10,000 kids come to Christ Jesus. We now have people on our pastoral team, guys who got saved, out of drugged out, broken families through that ministry, but also was imported to Kenya. And they estimate two years ago, because it, they didn't just do it in churches in Kenya, we've, we've, had, um, we've had teams that go regular Kenya, teach uh, Christians over there. And also we had a, a couple from our church full-time living there, representing our church, because we call these, these places Youth Venture, the, uh, the, 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 the clubs they can go hang out at. But an apostolic guy about 15 years ago contacted our church and said, I heard what you're doing with this youth venture. We need this in Kenya. Can you send teams over to train? So we did that, and it began to flourish in their churches. The, the uh, cabinet member in Kenya at that time, who was a Christian in charge of education, he heard about it, and he called that uh, apostolic guy with his church said, can you train some of our high school teachers about this? So we've had teams from our church go and train secular high school teachers 
Three years ago, they estimate that in Kenya, over 100,000 high school kids went through this Christ-based discipleship program. And what they began to see, at least over a two or three year period, was over a 90% reduction in teenage pregnancy, pregnancy outside of marriage, and they began to see a 90% reduction in kids dropping out of high school. So if someone had told us, you know, 20, however many years ago that was, a long time ago, 1992, that if you start this, it's gonna go on to impact a whole future generation of leaders in a nation of Africa, we would've said, oh, come on, that's over the moon, to quote John or not. But see, the Bible says, do not despise, hey there, do not despise the day of small beginnings. So I shared that I've been seeing this vision of this lighthouse going out. Well, we're praying for the meeting, I'm kind of walking around, get my thoughts together. Uh, John, do you mind going to that little room there and, and just staying there? No, but there's a picture in that little, would you, there's a picture on the floor. Would you get that? And, I mean, I, I didn't know this was gonna be here. Look at that. There's your lighthouse. But in the vision I saw, the light was not going out to sea, it was going inland. And we even had a, a word, or um, Jane was quoting from Isaiah the prophet, arise, your light will shine. Thank you, John. So I, I want to encourage you um, that governmentally, just as Isaiah prophesied, the government will rest upon his shoulders. And you know, we can think about all the complex problems of society, especially with politicians. <laughs> That's a can of worms. But uh, you know, the Bible says in Proverbs that the hearts are kings are channels of waters in the hands of the Lord. He directs it where he will. And so we had those five city council members, only one said, I'm gonna vote for you. And do you know that for the last 20 years, uh, usually at least 80% of our city council in El Cajon are now born-again, spirit-filled Christians. Our mayor is a born-again, spirit-filled Christian. So in May of last year, when almost all the churches were in shutdown, our church said, we're going to open up. And a lot of churches in California that did that, you know, you've probably heard of John MacArthur's church, maybe Cheon's, you know, uh, citing fines and all of that. Well, because the mayor of our city is a born-again, spirit-filled mayor who loves our church, and because the chief of police is a born-again, spirit-filled <laughs> police chief who loved our church, we didn't have any problems at all. <laughs> I was telling Murray and Ash as we were driving here yesterday, another church that's about our size in San Diego, they also chose to meet, and uh, they had several people call and complain about their meeting, so one of their pastors called the chief of police and said, well, what's going to happen? And he said, well, he said, uh, I've had about a thousand complaints of COVID violations. Um, I did see your complaint and I have, to, I have to honor them first come, first serve. So yours on the bottom of the pile. And he said, but let's do this. We heard this complaint about people coming and having meetings at your church. We'll send some police police officers this Tuesday morning to check it out. <laughs> so, when we think about this prophecy of Isaiah, there'll be no end to the increase of government, I'd like you to think 
that we're in this time of amazing divine acceleration of what God is doing to face the earth. I can't describe it to you as I see it. I'm not saying I've seen a vision from the Lord on this, but I see it in my mind's eye. If you picture the globe and kind of zero in on Jerusalem, you know, the Middle East 2,000 years ago, this tiny spiral started of the move of the gospel, the move of the kingdom of God. There should be no end to the increase of God's government. That was 2,000 years ago. And in just two generations, that spiral got bigger and bigger and touched you know, the Roman Empire, the, uh, the cities and nations under Greek influence and all of that. But over the last 2,000 years, that spiral has been getting wider and wider and wider, encompassing the whole world. And not just wider and wider, but there'll be no end to the increase. It's greatly accelerating. So this is a great time. It's always a great time to pursue the kingdom of God. But this is a really great time. And before we get into the actual message, which we will get into, I guarantee it, I mentioned that Jesus is not only the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the, the world, but he's also the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Yes. And one thing about the cat family, they're very good at sneaking up on you. Yeah. <laughs> I want to read to you from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. You don't need to turn to it. I'm not gonna, just going to read this one verse. But Malachi said, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. God is the God of suddenlies. But there's a formula there that it's for those who have been seeking the Lord. It doesn't just randomly happen. And many of you in your hearts, in your marriages, in your churches represented here, in your home groups, you've been really crying out for God. God, we know you have more than what we're seeing, more than eyes have seen, our ears have heard, more than we can understand. But there comes those times, both individually and corporately, like we experienced in the third week of January 1994 in Toronto, when all of a sudden, boom, the Holy Spirit was there. The Lord will suddenly come to his temple. Uh, a number of years ago, I was doing some meetings at a church in the Midwest here in the United States. And the Lord gave me a very specific word. I said, there's a woman here between 45 and 50, and you've had severe asthma all of your life. And when you were a child, your asthma was so bad, you couldn't run, you couldn't play sports and things like that. But then when you were in your mid-20s, your asthma got a lot worse. And sometimes every month, you're at least twice a month having to go to the emergency ward. They hook you up to the ventilator, all that sort of thing. And said, so the Lord wants to heal you. Now, that's a pretty specific word. I said the word once. Nobody came forward. So I waited a few moments. Nobody came forward. So I moved on some other words, different directions of ministry. But the Lord said, give it again. I said it a second time. Nobody came forward. And so I moved on to other things in ministry. And then a third time, the Lord said, do it again. So I gave it one more time. And finally, this woman comes up out of the crowd. Now, this is her story. She sent a testimony into our website about uh, six months later. She said, you know, 
when I heard that word that there was a woman here that had asthma all of her life, couldn't play sports and kids as a kid, couldn't run, and it got worse when she was in her mid-20s, in and out of the, you know, the ER and all of that, I thought to myself, this is amazing. There's somebody else here just like me. <laughs> Uh, one of the things, you know, I've ministered all over the globe, and one of the things I love about nations, even within nations, is there's subcultures within the culture of a nation. And I've never lived in the South, but I, I love being in the South. I love grits. I, I, I love uh, fried catfish. I love fried okra, you know. I, I could, you know, I, I go hog wild when I come to the South, you know. But anyway... Uh, the South has a number of unique sayings, you know, and uh, <laughs> and I understand this this emanated out of the South, but it, it goes something like this: How dumb can you be and still be drawing breath? <laughs> well, isn't it amazing? There's somebody else here just like me. Well, I give the word a second time, and she wrote, you know. Maybe that word was for me, but maybe God's angry at me that I didn't go forward the first time, so I better not go up there. Then she wrote, I heard the word the third time you gave, and I thought, wow, God's really going to be angry on top of angry at me if I don't go forward. Well, of course, God wasn't angry. And so she, that was her to a T. She suffered severe asthma all of her life, severe limitations, and quite often she was in and out of the ER, being put on the ventilator with all the stuff being put in her lungs. And uh, being about, I don't know, between 45 and 50, she got 100% completely healed. And she said, as a testimony, this is during the summertime, early summer, but she said, something I haven't been able to do, I've, I've, I almost never do, is we have big family gatherings of the extended family on July 4th, and I usually don't go, or if I do go, I have to sit outside because a lot of my family members, my extended family, they smoke, and I, I, I'll just get violently, you know sick and she said I went this year no problems whatsoever um, the Lord will come suddenly to those who seek him we were in um, uh, Taiwan in Taichung it's the second largest city in Taiwan it's in the middle of the, the nation and we were doing a conference on miracles, and we did a number of healings, and even some miracles happened. But the best testimony I got about uh, two weeks later, the church sent it to me. They said there was a lady who came to the, every meeting of the conference. She was uh, not on the prayer ministry team. She wasn't known for someone who moved in spiritual gifts, laying hands on the sick, that sort of thing. But uh, she came to every meeting and just sat through everything. And about five days later, I think they said on a Friday morning, she uh, had finished swimming at the swim hall. She went about three times a week for exercise. She'd swim laps and things. And um, she's sitting uh, on, the, on the bench right outside a plexiglass wall, separating the entrance from the, uh, the swim place to the street, waiting for her husband to pick her up. And at the opposite end of the bench, an older gentleman who didn't look very healthy he just collapsed and fell right over. And some of the crew in the pool hall saw him collapse and they're trained in CPR and all that or, you know, uh, whatever it is. So they run out, they're trying to revive him. He's not breathing. He's turning blue right in front of them. 
and, uh, and he's literally dying. You know, everything they're trying to do, nothing's working. And she said she just sat at her end of the bench while this commotion's going on, quietly interceding for him. And then the thought came to her. She said, I just heard for three days in a row that God is still moving in miracles. She felt quite awkward. She had never done anything like this before. She kind of pushed her way through the crowd, put a hand on the, on the man's chest and said, in the name of Jesus, I rebuke the spirit of death and I call you to life. And the old boy just sat right up, completely. You know. And the point of this is that there's, the, the, there's the, the both end of how God works in our lives in preparation. And by that I mean sometimes it's step on step, line on line. We take a little responsibility here. We're faithful at that. Then you get promoted. You step in a new situation. And that's how most of life is. But there's also times when God is preparing you for something and you don't even know he's preparing it for you. It can be happen as a church, it can happen as a family, it can happen as an individual. Yeah. And all of a sudden, it seems like suddenly, wow, yes. Yes. this is happening. Yes. Things I've heard about other people testify, but I never thought, or opportunities that I hear about other people in business getting, I never thought would come my way. But again, Malachi said, I send my messenger, and God usually gives us prophetic inklings about what's to come to prepare the way, prepare our hearts but the Lord whom you seek. And so it's talking about a faithfulness of God, just as when we're faithful in life, we're faithful in relationships, we're faithful in our jobs, we're faithful in our responsibilities, to those who are faithful in little, what? More shall be given. But suddenly those mores come suddenly. Are you still alive? So as we think about things and... Um, uh, we, uh, in my ministry, we send out uh, usually a couple of times a year, three or four times a year, a uh, prophetic e-letter to about uh, five or six hundred uh, pastors, leaders internationally. But we also have a dedicated ministry uh, Facebook that we just use for ministry stuff. And throughout, especially the first two weeks of uh, what's recently gone on in Afghanistan, we sent out uh, updates for prayer and actually a, a five-point uh, suggestion how to pray for Afghanistan. But to bring this back home about being globally minded, uh, I'd like to just encourage you with what I said last night, that uh, Afghanistan, after Iran over the last five years, has had the fastest growing church of any nation in the world. It's just been incredible what's happening with the underground church. Um, and so we understand that there's still at least 100, possibly hundreds of United States citizens there, maybe with NGOs or married in that need to get out, or at least their lives are possibly in danger. We understand there's a number of people that have cooperated with the American military for 20 years, that their lives are in danger. But a lot of what's going on has to do with it's a demonic attempt to destroy this move of the spirit than what's been going on. And I want to encourage you, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but as you think about Afghanistan, pray, yes, let's pray for the United States citizens that if they need to get out, they can get out, and uh, other people who have, you know, friends of the United States whose lives are in jeopardy, that they could get out if they need, if they can. 
but I also want to encourage you to pray for the Christians there because their lives are very much in danger right now. Um, and to pray that just like in Old Testament times, the Lord would blind their enemies. I don't mean physically blind the Taliban, but to prevent them from being able to see and recognize the Christians, but also pray that God would cause confusion. But more importantly, pray that uh, people in the Taliban would get saved, you know, especially the high-up leaders. Because um, we can't go into details. We wouldn't want to anyway. Um, but I know of a number of missionary organizations behind the scenes. You will not read this on any website whatsoever that are actually working with Christian former SEALs and Marines that are going in from different parts of the country, going through the mountains, and they're going in loaded with guns because it's very dangerous, and they're getting some Christians out. There have literally been hundreds of Christians that have been smuggled out through the mountains and things just in the last week or so. But there's also a number of Christians that have said we do not want to leave no matter what happens. I, I shared last night that a few months ago I had an opportunity to um, sit and listen for several hours from an apostolic leader in Iran. Uh, we, we don't even know his real name. He can't give that out. Uh, uh, he's also an American citizen. He goes in and out. But and I, when I share this, uh, please understand I'm not trying to be graphic or, uh, you know, uh, uh, I'm just trying to illustrate the severity of what the Christians face in that part of the world. That in Iran, that when someone is discovered to be a Christian, one of the first things that happens to them with the police is male or female, they are raped with an electric baton. It's just, in, and usually they're killed. But this is a known reality. And so when a person in Iran gives their life to the Lord Jesus Christ, they're aware what they're signing up for is not just a life of blessings and to go to heaven, but they're aware that they may be signing a death sentence over their life. They know that going into it. And, you know, you will hear some people say it's impossible to have revival without persecution. They talk about China and, you know, Iran, different places, or Uganda. But I've also seen, as I may talk about a little bit tonight, some of the amazing revivals and moves of the spirit that have happened in North America and Europe have happened without revival. So I'm not trying to put a trip on anybody that's saying we need to get into that mode, you know. But because, you know, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, right? But I'm just saying that there's a, a collective, uh, I know this sounds trite for me to say this, but there's a collective seriousness of this grand mosaic God is releasing and weaving over the world today, this acceleration of the kingdom of God. And we're called to be part of it. Are you alive? Yes. So uh, let's be like that lady who wasn't even used to laying hands on people with bad backs or shoulders or stomach conditions. All of a sudden, she's raising the dead. Let's believe God, as we prayed last night, that we're going to step into uh, far more than we've seen or heard or experienced. Are you still alive? Yes. 
Y'all are looking very serious. Okay. I'm glad they took the offering before the no, just <laughs> Okay, I want to speak. Uh, are, are we able to do the PowerPoint? Okay, good. Uh, <laughs> I need a little TV screen so I can see where we're at here. Um, I want to talk about igniting the miraculous, and I want to talk about a few considerations about the miraculous. Um, and again, um, I'm not coming from a point that we should make miracles, healing, prophecy, the in-all and end-all. They're tools God gives us for the work of the kingdom. You know, you see a plumber with his truck driving down the road. You see a roofer driving down his truck during the road. You see a, a carpenter. They all have different tools for the work that they're doing. And gifts of healing, gifts of prophecy, word of knowledge, the gift of miracles, gift of faith, they're tools for doing the work of the kingdom. I, uh, I, I always think it's interesting when someone says, well, I'm a healer. Well, I'm, into, I'm a deliverer. I deliver people of demons. Uh, you know, Because the highest call is not to be a prophet, a teacher, an apostle. The highest call is to be a son or daughter of God. You know? there's, there's, there's nothing that compares with being a prince or princess in the kingdom. Hello, that's a message, isn't it? But in Galatians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul made this. Uh, most of you know that the main focus of the book of Galatians is the church of Galatia was now starting to fall into legalism from some of the uh, Jewish uh, brothers, you know, who are trying to bring in all the stuff you need to do. And uh, so Paul asked a rhetorical theological question. He said, uh, did you receive... The, the spirit by the law, I mean the works of the flesh, or by grace. And he said, uh, God does, uh, God who's given you the spirit also works miracles in your midst. And so he's making a theological point, but in the midst of that, or he's asking a theological rhetorical question, but in the midst of that, he's also making the statement that just as God gives the spirit, he also wants to do miracles. Now, I referred to the church in communist China that in 1953, when the last of the Western missionaries were kicked out of the country as uh, 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 Mayo had come into power and was pursuing communism, which is a very anti-God uh, religion, uh, philosophy of life, uh, all the Western missionaries were kicked out. They estimate that the church at that time was one million. Today, the church in China is well over 100 million. I think just the underground church itself is uh, close to 100 million people. And leaders of the underground church testify that over 80 to 90% of all people that come to Christ is because of healings and miracles and prophecy and signs and wonders. And most of you, I'm sure, have heard this, but in places like Mecca and Saudi Arabia, as well as in many other Muslim areas, there's been an incredible harvest over the years, last 10, 15 years, because in the Muslim world, they put a big emphasis in uh, Islam on dreams. And so there's been countless Christians or countless Muslims that have had dreams on revelation of Jesus Christ. And so... The, the gifts of the Spirit, healing, miracles, signs, and wonders, revelation, is not just to give us fun, good meetings, although they are fun. In fact, sometimes they're funny how we respond to God. 
some of us get revelations so deep our angels don't even know what we're talking about. But anyway, um, there are tools for doing the work of the kingdom. And if God says he not only gives us the spirit, but he, wants to, but he does miracles, if we're not experiencing the miraculous, then something's off. God has not changed in his value. He has not changed in how he wants to work. And uh, so I, I want to take a, a little bit of a, a look at miracles, and uh, then we're going to pray. We're going to pray for impartation, the gift of miracles, but also that the Lord would do some things here. But I also want to say this, that miracles are not only uh, physical healings on a deeper level. A physical healing operating by the power of the Holy Spirit is when uh, there's part of your body that's messed up, and over a period of time, whether days, weeks, or months, it would heal on its own, but God doesn't accelerate divine healing. That's what a classic healing is by the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's an acceleration. It happens very, very quickly. But a miracle is on a different level of authority, and a miracle is with part of the body, maybe it's been destroyed by cancer, a withered limb, um, a blind eye, that is not going to heal and cannot be healed, and God releases his, his creative power to recreate that part of it. But miracles are not just physical healings. The, I've identified some seven different categories of miracles, and I don't, can't remember all of them offhand, but there can be miracles of God giving you favor, like the story I shared when we had that city council vote for our church to get the zoning variation. There can be miracles of what I call God giving you your heart's desire of things that are very much on your heart, but you just think they're impossible. There can be miracles of um, transformation where God, just like the first miracle Jesus did here on earth, transforming the water into wine. Uh, some of you, I don't know, uh, Murray Nash, whether you've met him, some of you have been involved. Uh, maybe you, um, my mind's gone blank. Uh, It'll come to me in a minute. Uh, I, st I still haven't had a double espresso yet this morning, so I've got some valid excuses there. Uh, but uh, this guy in 1993, I was in Barrie, Ontario, doing a couple of nights of meetings, and, uh, and the Lord gave me a very strange picture as I was driving to the meetings, and I saw a man's skeletal system. Um, his wife's name is Gwen. No, 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 a different Gwen. Um, but anyway, it'll come to me. Yeah, there's more than one Gwen in the world. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> but uh, it showed me man's skeletal system that had steel rods uh, going up and down uh, below the knee and above the knee attached to his uh, legs, and they had steel plates like L's attached to his feet bones and his lower leg bones. And... Uh, um, uh, the Lord said, I want to I heal this guy tonight. And think, well, Lord, you know, that's four and one. Couldn't we just go for, well, like, one steel rod, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but we get there, we're having the meeting, the worship, preaching, the ministry time, middle of the ministry time, the Lord brought that picture back to me. And I, so I said, is there a man here? I know this is crazy, but you have steel rods in both your legs, and uh, you have steel plates holding your feet bones and your lower leg bones together. And this big guy gets um, up from the back, and he's got a walker, and he slowly walks to the front. I didn't know him. I'd never seen him before. His story was that uh, before he'd gotten saved, about 10 years before, he was in the Hell's Angels, and he used to 
regularly get on his bike drunk as a skunk, and the last time he'd done that, he had a bad accident, his legs had been run over by a truck, and, and they had to, his leg bones were destroyed, they had to put these rods in just so he could have enough strength in his bones to just walk with the walker. So he comes up, and the power of God comes on him, and I, I left him on the floor with a couple of ministry team pray, people praying for him, moved on to the things. And in a few moments, I kid you not, he's running in the um, back of the room. And so I call him up, and I say, what's happening? And he gives his testimony. He said, I've had no flexibility in my legs whatsoever. I've barely, you know, been able to walk with a walker for 10 years now, and I'm completely healed. And I said, well, do something else you, 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 you haven't been able to do before. He said, I've had no flexibility in my lower back. And he said, watch this. And he was, uh, let's just say this diplomatically, he was a husky gentleman. He, when he bends over and touches his toes, the back of his pants ripped right open. But uh, he didn't care. He went jogging around the, the room of the sanctuary. Then he ran out the double doors of the church. And, uh, uh, you know, and, uh, but he and his wife, uh, his name will come to me, um, he and his wife ended up going to Wasaga Beach and they started a church there, and they passed that church for 20 years. Never got to be a big church, but they had a prolific ministry, ministering to uh, alcoholics and bringing people out of drug addiction. And he also used to go into the local uh, prison and do anger management for prisoners. And see, about this guy, he and his wife, Gwen, they had a call upon them. They had a destiny but they needed a miracle that working of that particular tool to kind of launch them into what God had for them. So there can be miracles of transformation. There can be miracles of God's favor. There can be, uh, uh, those about three or four different categories. Um, but uh, I wanna, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about these categories, but I want to encourage you about miracles of the heart's desire. Uh, because sometimes I talk to people and over a cup of coffee at meetings, conferences, and I say, well, you know, what's on your heart? <laughs> what, is, what do you think the Lord has for you? And uh, they'll say things like, well, I've been single all my life, and I'd really like to get married, or, you know, I I've, I've feel like I've got this, these job skill sets, and I've never really been able to implement them. I've never had an opportunity maybe to start my own business or go into this different avenue. And I'll say, well, let's pray. And sometimes they say, well, it's, it's just kind of what I want to do. God's never given me a prophetic word about it. Prophetic words are great. They can impart faith, encouragement. They can, so to speak, take people around corners. But here's the thing. God has created you and I in his image. And just as God is a visionary, God dreams, dreams, make plans. So in his image, sometimes we come up with plans and dreams. And uh, especially when those are godly, when they are righteous dreams and visions, regardless of whether God's given you a prophetic dream or a prophetic word or whatnot, uh, God still very much could want to do that. I remember the, the church my wife and I, future wife, and I met and got married at um, uh, in, in uh, North Senior County. The guy who op did all the sound uh, for our uh, electronics for the worship band for our meetings, really nice guy. He, I guess at that time he was about 38 years old. And 
to be diplomatic, we'll just say he was kind of a homely guy, just not very outgoing, not no real charisma, kind of just a, a very much of an introvert. And uh, just a really good guy, loved the Lord and faithfully served God, but really had no ambition in his life and had just a kind of a low-end job and just a quiet lifestyle. And I, I always used to say to him, uh, when are you going to get married? And he used to look down the ground and say, oh, Mark, I don't think any really good Christian woman would ever fall in love with somebody like me. And I used to say, well, I'm, I'm praying for you. And a couple, couple times a month as I'd think about him, I'd kind of shoot off a prayer. And, but... Um, my wife and I, as I said, we went on in 1998 and helped start this other church. And a year or two later, we went to a wedding um, uh, back with the kind of the old gang. And here's this guy, and he had two things on his hand that he never had before. One was a wedding ring, the other is a wife. <laughs> and he walks up and says, I want to introduce you to my wife. We met like a year and a half ago. And... and there's so many things that we have dreams and visions of, and I, and I yes. love it when God brings prophetic encouragement yes. and the, the faith that can impart. But there's also things in your heart that godly uh, things, that, and uh, sometimes it takes a miracle. If you were to tear all the miracles out of the Bible, you'd really have a holy Bible. Uh, the Bible contains over 125 miracles, just to name a few of them. And uh, are you kind of... Okay. There's miracles of the six days of creation, the plagues God afflicted Egypt with, the parting of the Red Sea, God bringing water out of rocks, the Jordan River standing still, the virgin birth, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, the resurrection of Christ, and the book of Acts alone records some 11 amazing miracles, primarily um, healings. A few considerations regarding miracles is, as I mentioned, the real gift God gives us is more than the miracles he performs. It's Jesus himself, the yes. gift giver. Yes. I love what David said in Psalm 142. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge. You are my portion in the land of the living. Yes. Where my church is at, I told you it's East Seno County, but in North Seno County, about 10 years ago, I was doing some meetings at conference with this church, and I think it was the first night the Lord gave me a word in the ministry time to pray for people with bad legs. And I don't know, 15 people came up. One lady was very noticeable. I think it was her left leg was dramatically shorter than the other. And when she walked, she walked like this. It was just painful to watch her uh, walk. And she walked up and received prayer like everybody else. Now, nothing happened right at that time, but something happened to her during the night. And the next night, uh, before I began the ministry time, I'm having people testify he'd received healings the night before. This woman comes forward, and she's walking perfectly. Both legs are the same length, and she's got this big smile on her face. But here's why I want to tell you specifically about this miracle. She uh, shared, and she said, I was born to missionary parents in Liberia, which is very much Western Africa, just above Nigeria. And she said, when I was a child, a baby, about seven, eight months old, I was in a car seat, and I was in the front of the car, and uh, no seat belts and, uh, in the car we had, and uh, we're going down the highway, and a car coming the other direction came right into our lane. We had a head-on collision. And as an infant, I was thrown through the windshield and you know, went a long ways. She said, my parents um, 
uh, got me to the hospital there in Liberia, and she said I had several operations, but I've grown up with a deformed leg, deformed hip, and shorter on my left side. I've never been able to walk correctly. And she said, now I can actually run. So this is exciting. But then she says these words that I'll never forget. She said, but I would trade that healing in a heartbeat for the revelation I saw in worship last night of the glory of Jesus. Now, you know, we realize God doesn't make deals like that, you know, that he, he gives all things graciously, freely. But just the regard that woman had for Jesus and the price she put on, the value she put on seeing Jesus in a bit of his glory, that, that just speaks volumes to us. And so again, David said, I cried to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge. You are my portion in the land of the living. Yes. A second consideration about miracles is to really have a complete biblical thinking. We've got to have some room for understanding uh, suffering from a biblical standpoint. Some people say, if you have enough faith, you'll never have problems. Well, that's silly, isn't it? If you never have problems, you don't need faith, do you? <laughs> don't, don't think about that too long. <laughs> Jesus said, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace, but in the world you will have tribulations, you will have problems. He said, take heart, I have overcome the world. Paul wrote to Timothy and said, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus, when Peter and John came to him, and they got their mother actually came to him and said, You know, um, when you get to your throne of glory, we have my sons on either side of you. And he looked at them, you know, I mean, Jesus always goes to the root problem. It wasn't Peter's mother. <laughs> and said to him, are you willing to drink the cup? I'm going to drink. And they said, yes. And so we understand that that cup was the cup of suffering, the passion. Jesus went through, and obviously the crucifixion. But Paul, in his life, with all the beatings, the stonings, everything he'd gone through, he talked about that I help on my part for the church to make up what is lacking in the suffering of Christ Jesus. And I'm going to talk a little bit more in depth with this later on as why sometimes God allows suffering. And contrary to what some people say, I don't believe God causes suffering. But he allows us in his wisdom and his purpose at times to go through it. I don't think God ever causes disease and things like that. But he allows things to happen. But in this overall picture of the history of humanity, the redemption of humanity, and the emerging of the church, the bride of Christ. There is a preparation we go through, and sometimes God uses the difficult seasons in our life to shape us and mold us as iron sharpens iron. We don't like it very much, but as I said last night, there's at times where we feel like God is not working, He's actually working on a deeper level. It's just that we don't see the externals, but he's seen the internals that he's working upon. So Paul said, I help make up what is lack, lacking in the suffering of Christ. And I'm not saying let's all get masochistic. I'm not saying let's look for suffering. 
let's realize in the midst of those seasons, just like during the good seasons, God is always faithful. He will meet your every need according to his riches in Christ Jesus. He's not a man that he should lie. You are good. You are good, they sang, and your loving kindness endures forever. Are you still alive? I see those serious looks. So five key questions regarding God and miracles in today's world. Number one, the obvious, and this may be not a question you've ever realized, but the person next to you has. Uh, (laughs) Don't turn and look at them. Does God still do miracles today? Well, as, as we said, he wrote to the church of Galatians, said, does he who supplies the spirit to you and work miracles among you do it by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And so, yes, God is still wanting to be in the miracle business. And so Jesus told the disciples to proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's, uh, I, I know you know this, but I enjoy talking about it, so I'm going to say it for my benefit, not yours, because I know you know this, but the preeminent message of the Gospels is not about going to heaven. The preeminent message of the Gospels is the kingdom of God is at hand. The disciples were instructed to go and preach the gospel of the kingdom. And Jesus said, the kingdom of God has come near to you. The kingdom of God is within reach. He said, don't look for the kingdom of God here or there, for the kingdom of God is within you. Now, we understand that in heaven itself, there's an entirely different quality of life. At least we sincerely hope so, or else eternity could be very long. (laughs) There's a whole different quality of life. And so when the kingdom of God is moving on earth as it is in heaven by the power and revelation of, of the Spirit speaking, the realm of the always possible is invading the realm of the impossible. The quality of life is being changed. Uh, a few years ago, I was doing some meetings in Dayton, Ohio, and the Lord had me speak the whole uh, meeting. Uh, I spoke on Jesus, the Prince of Peace, and his shalom peace, the peace that passes all understanding. It's not just emotionally. It's our entire situation. That's what the word shalom means. But uh, I felt the Lord tell me during the ministry time to pray for people that had chemical imbalances, Uh, that suffered uh, depression because of chemical imbalances, that somehow, for whatever reason, their bodies were not able to produce enough serotonin, endorphins, and things like that. And about, I don't know, big big crowd, 25 people came forward for that. And I want to tell you the story of one man. I had never seen him before. uh, uh, And as he came walking up with Rustin, the Lord kind of drew my attention to him, and the Lord said, Tell him tonight's his night. And uh, so as I and the ministry team were praying for people, I specifically went for him. I said, I don't know what this means exactly, but the Lord says to tell you, tonight's your night. Well, uh, we shot a video uh, testimony of a man about three months later. That man, uh, he was about 55, I'd say at the time, he had suffered deep depression all of his life. Even as a child, he can remember always being depressed. He had been on antidepressants for over 25 years. And he came forward, got prayer that night, 
He, by faith, stopped taking uh, his antidepressants the next day to see what the Lord is doing. He has not suffered depression and once when we shot this video several months later, for the first time in all of his life, his wife said she feels like she has a new husband. His whole life was changed. And, and then at one point, I remember he brought his brother. His brother was not a Christian. His brother was much taller than him or me. His brother was this big old guy, and he looked a little bit like, you know, I'm going to kill you. You know, he had that zombie look in him. And he said, I, I brought my brother for prayer. My brother is um, manic, uh, not manic, he's, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Bipolar. And my, my brother can get very, uh, he's gotten very violent when he's off his meds. I thought, oh, no kidding. So he said, uh, my brother's desperate. Um, and so we prayed for him, and I don't know the final result, but uh, his brother's uh, uh, psychiatrist over the next two months saw such a radical transformation in him that he reduced his medication by half. And so um, when the kingdom of God comes, whether it's maybe working and doing favor or transformation or whatever it is, the quality of life we're experiencing, it changes. God does still do miracles today. The second question people have is, why are there not more miracles today? And I believe it's for two essential reasons. James said you do not have because you do not ask. And I believe we need to be aggressively as a church uh, asking God, you know, saying, Lord, you've given us this word that you give spiritual gifts, the gift of faith, the gift of miracles. You've said that you not only give us your spirit, but you do miracles in your midst. Lord, help us, teach us, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, give us that gifting, that anointing. And the second aspect of that is really we're still learning how to pray. We forget that the apostles spent three years, night and day, with Jesus. You can't have a better teacher <laughs> than what they saw and they experienced and they were sent out themselves. So we're still learning to pray effectively. I know that I've, I've actually been involved in teaching and preaching about healing and miracles for almost 40 years now, but I can say I've, I've saw far more healings and miracles 20 years ago than I saw 20 years before that, and I'm seeing far more consistent healings and miracles today than even five years ago, that we grow as we go. We grow as we go, as we're faithful in the little opportunities God gives us, more is added. And so I think we're called to be persistent. And sometimes I think churches have a conference or seminar, there's an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and their faith level is motivated for maybe six weeks or six months, but then things begin to taper off. But I believe there's a weight upon us. Oh, God, you've given us these sacred promises. And, you know, like uh, a promise I quote from the Lord all the time when I pray for people out of Psalm, 100 and, um, Psalm 103 is, Lord, you not only forgive us of all of our iniquities, but you heal us of all of our afflictions. Now, in quoting that, I'm not saying every single person we pray for gets healed. But yet, I think we have to avoid going to the other extreme than saying, well, God just intends to heal some people by taking them to heaven. I do think, and I've known a number of very godly men and women who have died of diseases, that, you know, thinking, well, Lord, you've healed everybody else. Why didn't you heal him? Why didn't you heal her? 
And obviously, when we go from this realm to heaven, that is the ultimate healing. But I believe there's a weight upon us to really press in upon the Lord, that the Lord wants to up the game. Are you still alive? Yeah. And, you know, it is a bit of a mystery. Um, you know, we, we can think of, of Jack, you know, very uh, godly man, godly couple. God used him powerfully, but yet he fought that fight, but he did receive the ultimate healing. I was, uh, there's a church in Harrow, England, uh, part of North London I go to uh, every year except for COVID last year. And uh, I was there about five years ago, and the focus for the three or four nights was healing. We were seeing a lot of healings. And so um, on the Saturday, I think the third day of the meetings, one of the worship leaders, he's in a coffee shop and ends up having this conversation with this young girl sitting next to him. Her name is B. B's having a cup of tea. And they begin to talk, and uh, somehow they begin to start talking about health. And B says, well, uh, I have severe um, uh, 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 Cronin's disease, you know, which is a severe problem with the, the colon. And uh, severe Cronin's disease is very limiting. I don't, you know what it is, so I don't need to get the graphics there. But it was, uh, B was only about 20 or so, but she'd had it since she was 13. Her whole life has been shaped like this. She's not able to uh, get a normal job because she just, you know, the stress of it and emergency situations. She can never be very far from her house, things like that. She was going in once a, a week getting uh, special medication from a clinic. And so this guy ends, ends up saying, well, you know, I don't know whether you go to church or not, but the last couple of nights in our church, we've been seeing God do some amazing healings would you be open to coming uh, tomorrow, you know, Sunday? And she agreed to come Sunday night. Now, B had never been to a church before, especially a Pentecostal church like this, people raising their hands and, you know, being a bit demonstrative during worship and, you know, sat through the worship, sat through the message, you know, and just way out of her zones there. And, uh, and wouldn't you know it, the Lord gave me a word of knowledge to call people up who suffered from Crohn's disease. She came up, she felt a burning going on in her stomach. Uh, not, a, not an unpleasant burning, but so, wow, something's happening here. And even more importantly, she gave her life to the Lord Jesus that night. Well, she took very strong medication every morning, every night. She didn't know what was going on. You know, she just doesn't really understand anything about all of this. But she said, okay, I'm not going to take my medication. And usually every night she was up several times having to run to the toilet. That was the first good night she'd had since she was 13 years old. She has a normal bowel movement in the morning. She didn't take her morning medication. And I, I never tell people that are, on, that are on serious medication to stop taking their medication. You know, I, I think that's, uh, you know, like Jesus said, go and show yourself to the priest. <laughs> go and see your doctor if there's a severe change. You know? But... Um, she didn't go into her clinic that week for medication, and they're calling her, what's going on? Well, a whole year goes by, and finally she went back to the clinic, and they, they had been treating her since she was a 13-year-old girl. B, where are you? What's going on? And she said, well, I've been perfectly healthy now for a year. And they said, uh, you know, what have you been doing, drinking carrot juice? You know, how do you heal yourself? And she testified that the Lord Jesus had healed her. 
Now, that was about six, maybe seven years ago. Last time I was with that church, which would have been 2019 before COVID last year, uh, she came. She goes to a different church now, but she gave her testimony, and she's now going to a ministry school studying to be a worship leader. So it, it just, it, I've been so frustrated at times because we, we all have known godly men and women that we pray for and pray for and pray for aren't healed, and then someone who doesn't even know the Lord yeah. wanders in church service. And I, I, I always tell people that when it comes to the prophetic and when it comes to healing and miracles, there's always a mystery because God is doing things according to his timeline that unfortunately can be very different from ours. God is the great I am, we're the great we're not. And it's, just, it's just the reality. So with prophecy, healing, miracles, or miracles, when and how God moves. Now you see the picture up there. Uh, uh, if you can go to the next slide. Um, that gentleman there, um, he's, I don't know, looks um, late 60s, maybe 70. Uh, I'm not talking about the guy with the mic, the handsome guy, but the, the, guy, <laughs> the guy in the blue sweater there. Uh, I want to tell you his story, that we were actually doing a prophetic conference, and this is in uh, Auckland, New Zealand. We were doing a prophetic conference there, and uh, the Lord had told me, like the second day of the conference, the last meeting Sunday night, the Lord wanted to focus on healing and miracles. So we encouraged people throughout the conference, on Sunday night, if you've got a sick relative or a sick friend, Christian or non-Christian, pray about bringing them. And so that man there, uh, the story is, when he was about five years old, he came down with polio. And from the time he was five to about 12, he walked, you know, remember those old-fashioned leg braces? He walked like that. But then he was 12, he came down with MS. And he'd been in a wheelchair from the age of 12 to that point right there. He didn't go to that church, but a young man who knew him, who went to that church, told him, brought him, that man walked out of the meeting. So they, he shared his testimony. The pastor knew that that's actually the pastor right there who's holding him by the arm as he's taking his first steps. Um, the pastor knew that man's pastor and called him and said, we've just heard this testimony. This man has not walked since he was 12 years old up and walking. Is this true? And the pastor says, well, I haven't known him. I've only known him 20, 25 years, but he's been in a wheelchair the whole time. And on top of that, from the MS, he's, his hands and arms shook that he couldn't shave himself. And also, is very, he had to have, when he had a hot coffee or tea, had to have a lid on it because he shook so much. And he said, all the shaking is completely gone. Now, the reason I'm telling you about this particular man is, uh, it's a good story, no, is... <laughs> He had been a Christian most of his life. How many times had he gotten prayer? I don't know. Yeah. Probably hundreds of times, maybe. But why that night? Yeah. We don't know, but that was God's time for him. Yeah. The next slide. God often uses the most difficult seasons in life to bring about Christ-like transformation. Paul prayed and talked about his prayers in 2 Corinthians 10 and 12. And some people believe he was praying about health, health issues. I believe he was praying about the ongoing persecution in his life. And 
Uh, he said three times he prayed and asked God to remove it. But he says here in verses, uh, chapter 12, 9 and 10, the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect, or my power is realized in your weakness. So when you're going through a situation, maybe emotionally, maybe socially, maybe financially, maybe physically, you are weakened. You feel like the end of your own rope. Why would God allow that? He allows that so we can learn to lean into him, for him, for his strength to be realized. Paul said, therefore, I will boast all the more glad in my weaknesses. Well, that doesn't make any sense, does it? Because when you boast, you boast about your accomplishments. You boast about your abilities, your prowess, uh, prowess all that sort of thing. But Paul saying, no, if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast about my weaknesses because my weaknesses force me to lean into Jesus and I realize his supernatural power in my life. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So, going back about 15 years ago, um, uh, uh, my wife and I, we did live for six years in Toronto, Canada. I've ministered extensively in Europe and northern countries in wintertime. I do not like cold weather. It was shocking our first winter in Toronto, Canada. They had this white stuff that covered the ground. I thought, good Lord, is this like one of the plagues? <laughs> it was cold. Let me tell you, you know, when God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, he never said go that far north. He never said go that far north. Any place that you cannot ride a motorcycle year-long is too far north. That's just, that's just my take on life. But anyway... Uh, I've been in a lot of areas with cold weather, but about 15 years ago, uh, uh, when I'd be in um, real hot situations, I, I almost felt like I was crawling outside my skin. I just began to go crazy, and I couldn't understand it because I'd grown up in Southern California. Um, so uh, a number of things happened, and about 14 years ago, I had to have uh, my blood tested, and uh, uh, it happened right before I did a trip to Australia, and uh, especially those days when international calls on cell phones were more expensive, you know, I didn't always answer my cell phone, you know, mainly just my wife or kids if they were calling or close friends, but I'm um, going through the airport, my ride's about to pick me up in Sydney, and uh, the phone rings, and I see it's my wife. And she said, um, the results came in from your blood test. And she said, the doctor said not to be alarmed, but anytime you hear a doctor say, don't be alarmed, you should get really alarmed. <laughs> You're in trouble. And they had been afraid I had uh, leukemia, uh, which uh, turns out wasn't leukemia, but it's a disease called polycythemia rubavera. If you can say that five times quickly, you know, I'll give you a free book or something. I don't know. But uh, uh, polycythemia, rubavera, is the opposite of leukemia. Your body produces way too many white blood cells, red blood cells, and platelets. 
And I found that my platelet count and my white blood cell count particularly were just off the charts. And they found, they told me later on that if I hadn't been a, a long distance runner all those years, I probably would have been dead at that point. Um, so for the last uh, 15, 14 years now, I've been on extensive medication. God's done a number of miracles and things. And um, uh, except for starting in March of this year, I would go in every month and do a blood test, and normally they would take a pint of blood. I've literally have given close to 200 pints of blood over the last 12 years, but God's been doing some things. I don't have time for that right now, but I haven't had to give a pint of blood since March or maybe February. But um, something interesting began to happen. I'd seen people over the last uh, previous 25 years healed of uh, blood diseases, including people healed of uh, AIDS and uh, different things, Pe see people healed of uh, hepatitis and things. But after I got diagnosed with my blood disease, I began to see an increase of seeing people healed of blood diseases. I don't think this explains the whole thing, but could it be that when God allows you to go through severe testing, we step into a greater revelation of his compassion for people who are likewise suffering. Because Paul went on to say, not right there, but he said, so that we can encourage others that are going through the same affliction that we've gone through. But could it be that for whatever reason, God uses the challenges in our life to draw sins, not only so we lean upon his power, but we have a greater revelation of his heart for people in different situations. Um, a third key question, why are not all people we healed that we pray for? Well, three essential reasons. I know this is some of the other question, but on, on some occasion, not all occasions, but some occasions there may be a lack of repentance. Um, it used to be common in some circles that if the leaders or the faith healer would ever pray for somebody weren't healed, they'd say, well, you weren't healed because of unbelief or you weren't healed because of sin in your life. Well, I, I think the fact that someone has enough faith to let you pray for the name of Jesus means they have enough faith to be healed. Jesus never said you need a mountain of faith to move a mustard seed of a problem. He said if you've just got a speck of faith, because that's what a mustard is, you've got enough faith. And, you know, for that matter, who's perfect? Nobody except for Jesus. Now, there are the obvious, so that if a person has ongoing years and years of bitterness, anger, and unforgiveness, not always, but quite often, that will internalize and cause physical problems. It can sometimes, not always, but sometimes cause cancer, cause ulcers, cause uh, all sorts of disease. Uh, neurologists believe that possibly over 85% of all people in hospitals are there because of long-term toxic thinking. Long-term habitually thinking uh, thoughts of anger, bitterness, unforgiveness, hatred, that sort of thing. So we know that, for example, someone who continually abuses alcohol, they're probably going to develop cirrhosis of the liver. And there's really no point in God healing that person with cirrhosis of liver if they're not going to change their lifestyle. So we understand that sometimes, yes, people need to repent, they need to change, uh, but that, that it's not a wholesale uh, answer for the problem. Um, 
that uh, uh, um, my mind's gone blank there. Um, but there, there, that may be um, part of the problem going on. Number four, I think I'm out of order here in my notes. Uh, no, I'm not. I guess not. Four, why does God do miracles today? Well, first of all, because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. When you read through the four different Gospels, depending upon what translation you use, uh, particularly in the New American Standard Version, there are nine different occasions where it said Jesus healed the person because he had compassion upon them. Compassion is different from sympathy. Uh, where I live at in California, Southern California, we are inundated with street people, homeless people. And you see a homeless person or you see an ad for a starving child in part of Africa and Asia, you normally feel sympathy, but sympathy does not always motivate you to take action. Compassion is like a word of knowledge. It motivates you. I believe it's from God the Father. It motivates you to stop and do something. There's two different uh, stories, or several different stories. I said nine of them, but we can think about the, the leper. What is that? Luke 1, who dared to come into the village where Jesus was preaching. You know, by rights, they could stone lepers. But he'd heard that Jesus was there, and he said, um, cried out, Son of David, have mercy upon me. And Jesus said, what do you want? He said, I want my skin to be healed. And it says Jesus felt compassion for the man, and then... He not only healed the man, but he did something that nobody else would do. He actually put his hands upon the man. Everybody else would beat them with sticks or throw rocks at them to drive them off to the lepers' colonies, you know, because some forms of leprosy are so highly contagious. I'll never forget the first time in Mexico the Lord had me put hands on someone with leprosy. I was saying, thinking, Lord, it'd be really good if you give me a word of knowledge. Is this the contagious or the non-contagious <laughs> leprosy? But... Uh, we also think about the story in, uh, I think it's Matthew chapter 20, where Jesus is doing his last trip to uh, ministry trip to Jerusalem, and they're marching from Jericho, walking. It says there's a great multitude, probably hundreds of people. And there's two no-account poor blind beggars on the side of the road because it was a journey uh, route of trade caravans. And, you know, maybe the people in trade caravans would throw part of a loaf of bread or a few pennies, whatever. But they hear hundreds of people walking by and they say, what's up? What's going on? And people said, it's Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. And for three years, everybody's been talking about Jesus the healer, Jesus the prophet, maybe Jesus the Messiah. So this is our golden moment. And they yelled out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon us. And the crowd began to tell him to shut up. Now, I know you've never been around Christians that can't be bothered with hurting people, but there are a few out there. Anyway. <laughs> They started yelling out even louder, you know. Um, <laughs> I remember one time, we, it was uh, kind of the height of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Toronto. We were doing a, a we used to get like four or 5,000 people on our conferences, like in 94, 95, 6, 90, up to 98 or so. Then it began to taper off a bit. But one of the big old conferences, I was there for the first three nights of it, and then I was uh, flying off the next day. And my, uh, I'd had a busy schedule, and I'd been involved, very involved in the conference, and my wife and I had spent almost no time together the previous week. And so it was at the, um, some of you may remember, the old uh, hotel, um, uh, Regal Constellation Hotel, 
they had this big old room you could get in 5,000 people and so we snuck out of the meeting and we were going to go uh, just walk to the hotel restaurant just to have an hour or two by ourselves and I remember I think it was a, a gentleman from Korea he saw me walk out the room and and he ran after me as we're walking down the hallway and he literally grabbed me and pushed me against the wall and said you pray for me you pray for me and so, you know, I thought, well, this guy's got faith, so I prayed for him. But my wife was quite angry, you know. You know, we're just trying to get an hour to two by ourselves. This guy's being rude, physically, almost manhandling. But I thought, well, you know, honey, but the guy's desperate, you know. And uh, uh, I don't know how I got off on that. But, yes, Jesus, son of David, that, uh, that these two blind beggars, they started yelling out even louder, Jesus, son of David, and I love it. It says Jesus stopped. He said, bring those men to me. And when we lay hands on the sick or we give a bag of groceries to a, a family going through hard times or we share the gospel vicariously, we're in effect doing what the disciples did. We're bringing people to Jesus. And so they brought him to Jesus, and he said, what is it you want from me? It's interesting. Jesus knew what they wanted, but Jesus always wants a personal response from people, doesn't he? said we want our eyes to be open it says Jesus felt compassion upon them and so in Exodus chapter 34 when Moses was receiving his incredible revelation of God's glory on the mountain the Lord spoke of himself said the Lord the Lord a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness that God is a God of mercy compassion kindness graciousness so why does God do miracles today two essential reasons that we read in the book of Acts that things were going along great and then all of a sudden persecution kicked in it began with the arrest of Peter and John for the, the miracle outside the temple and they were arrested and threatened not to preach the gospel anymore but they gathered together with uh, the church and they prayed and the, the heart of their prayer is found in Acts 4, verse 29 and 30. They said, Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when you read that to the end, it says, The Holy Spirit came like a mighty rushing wind. And that's why when people say, oh, there's only one Pentecost that happened. No, in the early days church, they had more than one. That our lives, when it comes to being filled with the Spirit, you know, Him being the fire and the fuel within us, you know, it's kind of like getting your car, going a long trip. You've got to refuel every once in a while. And so to be filled with the Holy Spirit, it's an ongoing process in the give and take of the relationship. But healings and miracles are often referred to, uh, as well as other things, as signs and wonders. Now, many of you have been involved in ministry in Africa and different parts of the world. You know, in places like India or Africa, that there's much more faith for the supernatural. And so you can see an, an entire remote village, you know, come to the Lord because of one miracle. And we realize it's not like that in North America or Europe, UK. But still, it's a key tool that God has given us. That uh, in Ohio, I was doing a series of meetings uh, on healings, and this church I was with, they had three services on the Sunday morning, 
And so you could not go over because they had to get everybody out of the first two services so the new crew with their cars could come in and find room to park. And I'd gone a little bit longer with the second uh, service message than I wanted, and I like to really take time when I pray. But I, I just thought, okay, everybody who's sick come forward out of a crowd of 700 people. 100 people, a lot of people come forward for prayer. There's no way we're going to be able to lay hands on all these people and get everybody out of the parking lot. So I said, here's what we'll do. Everybody who did not come forward, stretch out your hand, and I'll lead you in a corporate prayer. So we uh, all said a corporate prayer and said, okay, get in your car, go home. Thank you. <laughs> I didn't say that, but, uh, well, we kind of did. So um, the, the, we had a, a number of testimonies of healings, but here's the coolest one. There was a man in the back of the crowd that a number of years before, he'd been in an auto accident and smashed his, I think, his right elbow in three different places. They did operations, but he had never gotten full use of his arm again. He had to learn to read, uh, to write, and use a hammer, keyboards, and everything. Uh, well, you do anyway, but uh, he had to use, begin to use his left hand for almost everything. And he had lived like that for a number of years. And so what I said, if you need prayer for healing, come forward. He didn't even think about that, you know. But when I said, everybody do not come forward, stretch out your hand, people front, he stretched out his hand. And for about 10 years, his arm he could not straighten out more than this or could not bring it back to touch his shoulder. And the muscles were atrophied. As he stretched out his hand to pray, it went all the way. And he's looking at this, and as he's looking, the atrophied muscles filled in, and he, he can bring back, touch his shoulder. So the service ends. He's walking out in the foyer where his uh, son, who's about 17, is in the young adults meeting, comes out. And as a, as a, his son, as a boy, used to pull and pull and pull on dad's arm. And no matter how much he pulled, he couldn't get his arm to straighten out. He shows his son and says, look at this. They're in such shock, they didn't go home. They went to his brother and sister-in-law's house, who weren't Christians, and showed them what the Lord had did. And as well that week, he showed two of his co-workers, who knew him very well, knew what was wrong with his arms, showed him what the Lord had done. So we had the brother and sister-in-law and two co-workers and their spouses come to church the following Sunday. They all got saved. So we might not see a whole community get saved from one miracle, but six salvations for one healing is a pretty good deal, you know? So we have a place and a need for signs and wonders, not just in Africa or in India or China, but right here. And the fifth question is, uh, uh, well, number five, is anything impossible for God? You know, when the Lord said to Abraham and Sarah, she... He's a, almost 100. She's in her 90s. They've, this promise that they're going to have their own children has never happened. And he said, at this time next year, I'll return and the child that promised will have been born. So Sarah laughed. That was not a Holy Spirit-induced laughter. <laughs> that was a, a laughter of unbelief. But let me say something about Sarah. When you read in Hebrews chapter 11 what they call the Hall of Fame of men and women in faith, it lists Sarah and said Sarah was faithful because she believed God was faithful, was capable of what he'd spoken to her. And so sometimes something you've been dreaming, praying, working towards, all of a sudden God says, now's the time. And you think, oh, come on. Well, maybe you don't. The person next to you does anyway. We had a guy, um, he's actually on our prayer ministry team at my, my church in San Diego. And he works as an usher and helps out with different things. One of our Sunday morning services a few months ago, he was helping the sound guy move something during the ministry time. 
And uh, I said, everybody with bad backs come up. He'd had a bad back for years, very limited. He could no longer play golf, which I don't know if that's a problem. You know, if people play golf, they hit a ball, they chase it, they hit it again. Why don't they just keep it? I don't know. I just, I just I don't understand it. But uh, anyway, but he had suffered severe back pain for years. And, um, and so he couldn't, he was helping the sound guy move something around the sound booth and, uh, and, and, he, and he heard me say, if you've got a bad back, just come forward and people can say, okay, everybody lift their hands up to receive healing. And he kind of with one hand lifted his hand up and he heard the Lord say to you, I'm healing you. Now this is a guy who'd been living with this for years. He'd gone to chiropractors, done all sorts of things, gotten prayer many, many times. He was in the prayer team. He hears the Lord say to him, I'm healing you. And his reaction was, sure, we'll see about this. It wasn't that he didn't have faith. He did have faith. But when those suddenlies come, they can be such a shock to your surprise, your system that, you know, you don't, we don't really know how to respond. So Sarah left, but she really did have faith. But what I want to draw your attention to is what the, uh, the angel of the Lord said to her. She'll, when she laughed, she'll indeed bear a child now that I am old. She said, is, he said, is anything too hard for the Lord? Some 2,000 years later, not an older woman, but a young woman who's not even married yet, the angel Gabriel came to her and said, Hail, favored one, you are going to give birth to the Messiah. And she said, how can this happen? You know, I've never been with a man. And he said, well, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you'll be overshadowed by the power of the Most High. Oh, yeah, that explains everything. Thank you. <laughs> but the angel Gabriel said this almost the same thing that the angel Lord had said to Sarah. What's impossible for man is never impossible for God. And so when we're praying for people whether we're interceding or we have an opportunity to lay hands on them, no matter what sort of miracle they may need, a physical miracle, a miracle with their job, for a job, or favor, or maybe in a lawsuit or something, considering, you know, assuming they're righteous, <laughs> uh, that we're praying, we need to remind ourselves that we're praying to God, who nothing's impossible for him. That phrase, nothing is impossible for God. Um, the, the church in Ohio, I mentioned it. I do a lot of ministry in Ohio, Cleveland, Toledo over the years, but uh, Dayton, we were based there for a number of years. There was a guy in the church there. I did, had, didn't really know him. I prayed for him and his wife a few years before. His, um, they'd had problems with one of their daughters. Um, one of the pastors there told me that this guy, his name is Pat, his wife's name is Rebecca, and I've, I've actually had them share this story in conferences. They've given me permission to share their testimony. Um, I heard from one of the pastors they were going to go through divorce, and so I walked into church one day between services, and there was Pat at the coffee bar. I went up, said hello, and I said, hey, I don't mean to pry, but I've heard there's problems in the marriage. He said, yeah, we're getting divorced. I said, well, is there any chance of guys getting counseling or working things through. He said, no, I was involved in some things I shouldn't have been involved with. Rebecca found out and it triggered some things from her childhood and that's it. She wants a divorce. So they got a divorce. 
Rebecca ended up going to another church for six months, realized she really missed our church. She came back and just went to, you know, we had three services a weekend, just went to a different service, which is one of the reasons why you should have multiple churches. No, I'm just messing with you. But, uh, you know, so your ex can go to the different one. So uh, we ended up for a month having a series of special prayer meetings, six nights a week. And uh, they made the mistake they both ended up showing up for the same Monday night prayer meeting. Rebecca had no intention of coming. She was driving home from work, and she heard the Lord say to her, turn your car around, I want you to go to church and go to the prayer meeting. So she turns the car around and goes to the prayer meeting. She walked in late, and again, I was in the coffee bars about halfway through the prayer meeting. I had a revelation years ago, you cannot have revival without good coffee. <laughs> That's just a fact of life. It's written in the book of Mark. So, um, about halfway through the prayer meeting, I'm out in the foyer getting a cup of coffee and, you know, about to come back in. And in walks Rebecca, a good half hour late for the prayer meeting. I didn't know her hardly at all, just enough to say, hi, how are you? She says hello, and I follow her in. Now, that sanctuary of that church could hold 1,100 people. There's about 50, 60 people up front, mainly in the first couple rows, and some people kneeling down by the altar. She sees her ex-husband, Pat, up front kneeling down. She's angry that he's there, and she wanted to leave, but she remembered the Lord told her to said, said go to church, go to the prayer meeting, so she sat in the very last row. Now, 1,100-seat hall, everybody's up here, one person's last row. It's like a mile and a half, you know, and I walked by her. She's like this, you know. I said, well, at least she's here. So as I'm walking up, the Lord begins to speak to me, and I kid you not, the Lord said, Mark, let's have some fun. How many of you know that kingdom fun is somewhat different from fun as the world thinks of it? So as I'm walking up, the Lord says, I want you to go get Pat and take him back to his ex-wife. Now, I didn't know at the time that Pat was a former military policeman, or else I would not have done this. But I went up, and Pat was actually kneeling down here with some others who were lifting up some prayers. I grabbed him by the wrist said, come with me. I dragged him all the way back said, sit down next to your uh, former wife, Rebecca. And he's looking at me, you know, and he's looking at me, she's looking at me, and the old, the old phrase, if looks could kill. He would have been dead first, then I would have followed, you know. So reluctantly, he sits down next to her. I said, this is what the Lord Jesus says to you. The two of you have bought into a lie from hell, and you believe the things that are impossible for you are also impossible for God. I said, I break that lie in the name of Jesus, and I call you back in his name, back to your first romance and your first friendship. And I said, join your hands together. They joined their hands together. And I'm not exaggerating of the rest of the prayer meeting, a good half hour, they just sat there hugging and weeping and weeping. They went through nine months of counseling in different ways. Uh, Rebecca decided to deal with her childhood issues where there'd been some abuse involved. Pat dealt with his uh, issues and with some addictions. But also at this point, whether you call it post-marriage counseling or pre-marriage counseling, went through counseling together as a couple. And almost nine months today, I remarried Pat and Rebecca in Pat's backyard. And a week before the wedding, uh, I sat down with him and said, and I don't do a whole lot of weddings. I don't have the, I began to manifest at weddings. Gee, look at the time. When is this? <laughs> I had to avoid that. And on August 7th, my oldest daughter got married in our front yard. But anyway, so uh, I said, okay, how are you going to do this? How many bridesmaids, how many groomsmen? And Rebecca said, well, We've talked about that, and Rebecca said, actually, counting this new marriage to path, this is my third marriage, 
And she said, it didn't work out too well the first two times. We want to do something differently. I said, well, what do you want to do? And she said, I had two daughters from my first marriage that were about 10 and 8 years old when I married Pat uh, eight years ago. My two daughters never liked Pat, never honored him, never respected him, never obeyed him. But over the last nine months, as my daughters have seen what God has done in our hearts, they've fallen in love with Pat as a dad. And my two daughters have asked if they can stand on either side of us during the ceremony because they want to testify to everybody how God has healed our family. And that's what they did. And even for a guy, I liked the wedding. It was really, really fun. So I tell you this because, you know, divorce, hardened hearts, it's one of the the primary uh, demonic onslaughts against society in the Western world today, including, unfortunately, the church. But yet the things that are impossible for man are never a challenge for God. So when God gives you an opportunity, when, you know, Paul said faith comes by hearing and hearing from the word of God. And that word that he used for word, it's raiment, meaning what the Holy speaks to you, what he provokes you to. Dreams, visions, revelation. Like that woman, that Taiwanese woman just sitting there who never even used to pray for people healed of bad backs. She's just quietly interceding, oh Lord, this man's about to die. The thought came to her, do something, you know. And faith comes by hearing. And when you hear the Lord, whether it's a dream or a vision or what I call a prophetic nudge, faith is imparted to you, the gift of faith. It's not something you drum up. It's not something you try to create. See, there's a difference between belief and faith. Our belief in God, our belief in the promises of God, our belief in the testimonies we hear, our belief in uh, the preaching we hear, that gives us a platform to walk on and stand on. And on that platform, from time to time, it could be in a church meet, could be in your home group, could be with a coworker, could be, you know, in a one-off situated restaurant or, or, you know, airport. But all of a sudden, God speaks to you. And when he speaks to you, faith comes from hearing. The gift of faith is imparted to you. And that's when the miracles began to break out. That's when the miracles began to break out. So is anything impossible for God? No. If you go to the next slide, the young woman you see there, uh, back about four years ago, this is actually at uh, Toronto, uh, the Toronto Catch the Fire Church. I was there ministering, and maybe five years ago now. And uh, we were doing, seeing a lot of healings in the night meetings, and uh, this young woman, she and her family, uh, several years earlier, had immigrated I believe from Egypt, either Egypt or Assyria, to uh, Toronto. And her friends brought her to one of the night meetings. She could barely uh, walk. She came down with one of the most, the rarest neurological diseases on the earth. Uh, It's such a rare disease, it, it took her doctors quite a while to figure out what it is. But in a nutshell, this disease causes all of your nerve endings, not just on your feet like neuropathy, but through your whole body to burn. You're in constant pain. She'd had it now for a year or two. She was most time unable to leave our bedroom, and there was no known cure for this. Here she is, a young girl, you know, I guess she's about 20 there, but she'd been told you're gonna live with this the rest of your life. That's a death sentence. 
And so her friends brought her to the meeting, prayed with her, and um, I've actually got her on a video. She doesn't actually give her her full last name because, you know, you know, coming from that part of the world, Muslim background doesn't want reprisals against her family. But uh, she got, she didn't feel anything when she got home. She got, uh, when she received prayer, she got home. About four or five days go by, and she was laying on her bed, and she all of a sudden, she just felt such an incredible presence of the Lord. And she cried out to God. She said, God, I'm in so much pain. You know, either kill me and take me home to heaven, or heal me, but after a while she noticed all the pain was 100% gone. And uh, she'd been living completely pain-free from this disease for almost a year when we had this testimony. Uh, from, from a disease that doctors say there's no known cure. So again, is anything impossible for God? You know the story, the father of the demonized son, the demons sometimes try to drown the boy through throwing him into a pool of water or throw him into fire to be burned up. He said uh, he brought him to Jesus' disciples and they didn't get very far, so he brought him to Jesus. And he said, uh, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said, if you can. <laughs> and he said, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Now I'm including this because oftentimes when we talk about faith, even a lot of good preaching and teaching about faith, it wanders into this avenue of almost forgetting that we're human beings. And they treat faith almost like it's a robotical thing. There, if you're in a faith mode, you're never going to have doubts. See, doubts are like temptation. The enemy comes and brings these thoughts to you, but you take, as Paul said, take captive every thought to the beatings of the Lord Jesus. And some people say, well, I, I believe God could do a miracle, might want to do a miracle, but I have all these questions. It's okay to have questions. It's okay to have doubts. It's just you don't let those doubts prevent you from being obedient to the Lord. And when you have the breakthroughs, well, that's when the doubts begin to start disappearing. Are you still alive? Yes. So this is a brilliant thing the Father said to Jesus, I do believe, but help my unbelief. I've been praying for the sick for 45 years now. I've, I've seen the Lord do healings and even a number of miracles all over the globe. But almost every meeting I go into, I said, Lord, please give me faith for what you want to do. So we don't just put this stamp on our head saying, I believe, and that's it, you know. But we go through life. And as we go through life, not only people we love, but sometimes ourselves go through seasons of disappointment, seasons of stress, trials and all that, we're human beings. We're not yet in heaven. <laughs> and so what that means is we can believe God, but we still might need the humility to say, Lord, increase my faith. Is this helping anybody at all? Okay. Because I, I think, unfortunately, sometimes some people who teach on faith put this impossible load upon people that you're never going to have questions, never going to have doubts. Well, at that point, you would cease to be human. 
So, if you're still alive, would you stand right now? <laughs> I know what you're thinking. You would feel even more alive with a little lunch in your stomach. But. I want to ask you, and you can keep your eyes open, and uh, you can uh, read this prayer, but I want to lead you in a prayer, and I know we have a couple different churches and a ministry represented here, but we're just going to do this as the church of the city, even though we're, um, obviously we don't have the whole church here, but we're going to do it as a token of the church of the city. So I want you to put on your loudest Pentecostal uh, <laughs> prayer voice, you know, and uh, uh, let's, let's pray this as if we really believe God's going to answer it. Let's pray this together. Just uh, come along with me. We believe, Lord God, that you desire to heal, deliver, and save in a much greater measure than we have seen. We believe you desire your kingdom to come to Myrtle Beach as it is in heaven much more than we have yet experienced. We stand before you as a church and humbly ask, even as Isaiah did, here are we, Lord, send us to those in desperate need of your saving power. Please anoint us to give us divine appointments with those in hurt and bondage. Like the early days church of Jerusalem, we ask that you would give us a boldness to communicate Jesus to the lost and grant that your hand would move in healings and miracles, signs and wonders, in the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Amen. I led you in the prayer for you got a chance to read it, so, you know, just entrapped you, but there we go. Just close your eyes right now and just hold your hands and your heart out to the Lord. And uh, Father, I ask in the name of Jesus, would you be pleased to move among us, Lord God? And Lord, I know that some of us have been involved in spirit-filled ministry for decades. But Lord, you have more, far more than we can think or ask. So we give glory to the one who will do that, you, according to your power that works through us. And Father, I want to pray for the church of Myrtle Beach, and particularly for those men and women standing here right now, that you would take us into the zone of more more than our eyes have seen, more than our ears have heard, more than we can comprehend. Come, Holy Spirit, would you anoint people right now and fill us with your power. Just right where you're at, just allow the power of the Holy Spirit come upon you. Father, I ask in the name of Jesus for an impartation of the gift of healing. I ask for an impartation of the gift of word of knowledge. I ask for an impartation of the gift of faith and the yes. gift of miracles. Yes. And Lord Jesus, you told us to those who have, more shall be given yes. and they shall have an abundance. I know that many men and women here have been moving powerfully in your gifting for years. But Lord, you said more shall be given. 
So I ask for an increase of your anointing of prophecy, of healing, miracles, healing, the gift of faith. Just right where you're at. Um, come, Holy Spirit. Fill people now. Lord, I ask for a fresh impartation yes. of the power yes. and the anointing, the yes. gifting of the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that you would surprise all of us just like you surprised that Taiwanese woman sitting outside the pool hall. Would you begin to use us for miracles and signs and wonders in the name of Jesus? Fire of God in the name of Jesus. Fire of God. Fire of God. I know that you know this, but I just want to state the obvious that sometimes when the Holy Spirit's moving, some people are affected outwardly in dramatic ways. Some people, nothing outwardly, but inwardly, something deep is happening. Some of the deepest anointings I've received. There's been no outward manifestation whatsoever. So I don't want anybody to think, wow, seems like she's getting something, but I'm not getting, you know, zilch. You know? No, we receive by faith. And as you believe God right now, there's an impartation of gifting, anointing, and even the power of the Holy Spirit. But having said that, I want to invite uh, two categories of people to come forward. And because it's getting late right now, tonight we're actually going to pray for different physical sicknesses and uh, see what the Lord does. But right now, there's some of you, you can physically feel in a very uh, strong way the power of the Holy Spirit upon you. Or, as well, there's some of you right now, you're not feeling anything outwardly, but you have a deep conviction, as deep calls deep in your heart. Something is happening right now that within you there is an impartation from the Spirit of God. So whether you're someone that physically you can feel the power of God upon you, or you just in your heart, you know that you know there's a divine transaction taking place. Uh, if you're in either one of those two categories, would you come to the front right now? Just spread out in a line, if you would. Or you can come a little bit more forward. It's okay to push people out of your way. Jesus said the kingdom suffers violence. Now just come as far forward as you can. Just hold your hands out to the Lord. And uh, again, like last night, we may need a few men to help out, just stand behind people. But uh, all of those of you who came forward, just hold your hands out right now. And uh, um, Father, I ask in the name of Jesus, Lord, that uh, we bless what you're doing here. And I ask that you would indeed uh, release a fresh anointing of your power and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now come in the name of Jesus. Let your fire be released, that your glory may manifest through these men and women.
fire of God on you right there. In the name of Jesus. Fire of God upon you right there. In the name of Jesus. Fire of the Holy Spirit upon you. Fire of God upon you right there. Fire of the Holy Spirit upon you. Increase to you, Patricia. Increase to you in the name of Jesus. Fire of God upon you. Fire. Fire of God upon you. In the name of Jesus. Fire. We're going to be spending a lot of time tonight during the ministry time praying for various illnesses. But I believe given the, the Lord's giving me a word right now. There's somebody here that has, it may not be Cronin's disease, may not be quite that serious, but you have ongoing stomach problems related to your digestive tract. It could be severe allergies, could be IBS. Uh, is there anybody here with uh, those sort of problems? Okay. Two people? Uh, anybody? Three. Okay. Uh, four. Okay, just keep your hands up, and here's what I'd like to do. If someone around you has their hand held up right now, would you get near them? There's two ladies there, a lady there, lady there. Uh, Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask for release of your healing miracle power upon digestive tracts right now. I take authority over food allergies and I break them off in the name of Jesus. I bless your chemical system and your digestive tract to be renewed now. 
And I also take authority over IBS and I break that off of you. I break off that spirit of affliction and I command to come up and off of you now in the name of Jesus. And I bless your body to receive all sorts of foods perfectly and process them perfectly in the name of Jesus. I bless you to eat all sorts of foods and for your body to process them and send out proper nutrition throughout the body in the name of Jesus. In closing, uh, uh, before we break, I'll just say this. of the, If you really uh, desire to, um, I know a lot of you have been moving in healing and miracles for years, but uh, we, uh, I and a good friend of mine, we co-wrote a book several years ago called Healings and Miracles Today, and also I've got a two-CD set there on miracles. But as well, um, one of the books, uh, other books I want to mention is called Pursuing Open Heavens. And it's all about, uh, I talk a lot about what I call throne zone protocol, about the whole art of intimacy, of approaching the throne and the glory of God and how to respond to him, both corporately and as individually. So all that stuff is back there. Before we break for lunch, uh, turn to the person next to you and say, you look different to me. Now... Now say to them, you look like you want to take me out for a really good lunch. <laughs> 